Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson, and with me as always is Aaron Miller. This is our first episode for 2016. We took a couple of weeks break over the Christmas and New Year period, but we're excited to be back with you again and hopefully back onto a regular weekly podcast schedule now as we go into the new year. Uh, the main thing that we'll be talking about this week is CES. I was there in person for a few days this week, and I just got back last night. Uh, we're recording this Friday morning. Uh, Aaron was watching from a distance, um, but has some interesting views on, on sort of themes that he observed uh, in the news and coverage and so on of CES while, while uh, not there in person. Uh, and the other two topics that we'll cover more briefly today is, first of all, Netflix's big announcement of its international expansion to 130 new countries, uh, which I covered in a blog post this week for Beyond Devices. And then um, briefly at the end, we'll cover Apple's new App Store numbers that they released earlier this week, which I also covered in a blog post on Beyond Devices. So th those will be our three major topics. And then at the end, we'll wrap up as usual with our, uh, our weekly pick. And uh, next week, we'll hopefully be back to our regular feature of having a question of the week, which we've uh, dropped this week uh, with all the CES stuff that we're going to be talking about. So we'll kick off with, with CES. And uh, Aaron, why don't you pick a topic to kick us off here? What was one of the things that you sort of observed that was interesting to you? This is a quick topic, but I think it's cool. I'm excited with everything that's happening as far as USB-C goes. There's a lot of uptake. Um, especially in displays. Uh, Dell announced some monitors incorporating USB-C, <coughs> LG, Asus, and so, um, and there were also, and Samsung announced some external SSD-based drives, oh, and actually also some magnetic drives that uh, incorporate USB-C. And so that the new connector, which is great because it's reversible and all that, looks like it's getting plenty of uptake outside of Apple and the MacBook. Mm -hmm. And so I think we, I'm excited because it looks like it's the future. And and I think that's going to be an improvement over the USB connectors we have now. Yeah, no, it's interesting to see. I mean, it's making its way into more smartphones as well. We've seen several smartphones over the last few months, including at least one or two at uh, CES as well that were announced with USB-C as their main sort of charging mechanism as well. So it definitely seems to be very quickly sort of moving into the mainstream um, but especially around uh, the sort of PC laptop world as well, where it'll be very useful for peripherals for Macs as well. Um, one of the things that was kind of everywhere at CES from just being in there in person was drones. And there were tons and tons of uh, booths with drones. There were really big names, you know, the parrots of the world, but there was also lots and lots of smaller companies with drones of that were either specialized or um, tons of little Chinese manufacturers that had added drones to the list of generic stuff that they make, um, but just everywhere. And it, and it reinforced sort of a, an observation that I've had over the last little while that there's really this sort of bifurcation in the drone market between what you might call toys on the one hand and then the really serious stuff on the other hand. And, and that was definitely in evidence at, at CES. Uh, a lot of emphasis on the bigger stuff, the sort of you know, professional cameras and that kind of thing. There was even a drone that's big enough to carry a person. Uh, at that point, you kind of wonder what the definition of a drone is, of it's carrying a person. Um, but uh, lots of interesting stuff around that. Um, some really interesting commercial applications. I mean, we've, we've all seen videos captured with drones. You may have seen uh, a video released a few weeks back of the new Apple campus that was taken from a drone that flew all around and even almost into the, the, what would be the parking structure in the auditorium. Um, and then 
Um, you know, I was talking to somebody from AT&T and he was talking about the fact that they're, they're experimenting with using drones to inspect cell sites where something's gone wrong. Um, and these are often sort of hard to get to. And he said it would cost a lot of money to send somebody to with a truck and, and so forth. But you could easily fly one of these drones over the top of it and it has a very high resolution camera that can see almost immediately what's wrong with the cell site. If there's a wire that's come loose or a piece of equipment that's been damaged or whatever, they'd be able to see that from the drone. He also said, as an aside, that these cell sites have typically been designed with all the boxes having barcodes on the bottom of them so that the engineer who comes up from below typically would be able to scan a barcode and, and quickly figure out which piece of equipment needs to be replaced and so on. Um, they're debating now whether those barcodes need to go on the top if they're going to be inspected by drones so that the drones could then read those barcodes and, and do the same thing there. So interesting sort of changes in, in business processes too as a result of this. But it, it does feel like there are these two parts of the, the drone market and uh, the professional stuff's really taking off and diversifying and, and lots of interesting new use cases there. I know, Aaron, you're skeptical on the sort of the toy side of this. I am. I think it'll be a fad. I mean, and, and my kids got little RC helicopters that, you know, use a lot of the same basic engineering that's making drones so you know easy to use and uh i mean they love them they're having a lot of fun but i don't think it's the sort of thing that's going to occupy their time you know for the rest of the year mm -hmm. which is what i think what makes drones kind of an odd presence at ces because it is about consumer electronics um but that said i think there's definitely a professional market for them and a lot of applications i uh, I mentioned to you before I saw a, a home listing on the internet that used drone video footage for the home listing and so they did a fly they, you know they did a flyover so you could see like the backyard they actually had the drone fly in through the entryway and into the house and the idea all along was to create a much more immersive you know experience for the house and mm. and it worked pretty well it was it was definitely compelling i think it was a smart real estate agent that set that up and right and it, so i think there are a bunch of professional applications i think on the consumer end people are going to move on I, I you know it's not that it's not that drones will get worse it's just that people you know like fads i think people just move mm -hmm. on to the next thing right and right. so I, I think drones will always be at ces but i think the dominant presence that they seem to have this year will fade hmm yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it sort of uh, as an aside again, it feels like uh, at CES, as I've been there over the last, I can't remember how many years it is now, but quite a few years now running, um, you know, it seemed for a long time like the Chinese companies would show up in a category sort of one to two years after most of the sort of mainstream companies were there. And it's just over the last several years, that, that time period between sort of the big consumer electronics companies launching something and the Chinese companies showing up with their much cheaper versions of it has really shortened a great deal. And with drones, that was very much an evidence this time around where they were everywhere in the Chinese sections of the various exhibit halls. Um, and that was true for a whole variety of other categories too, actually, including uh, virtual reality, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but, uh, you know, really amazing how quickly that Chinese ecosystem jumps on these new trends and is able to get something out there that looks very similar to what the big names are producing, but is often priced considerably lower. Yeah, hopefully they're not all the equivalent of the hoverboards that set on fire, though. Right. I mean, <laughs> yes. that's that's what's interesting about how quickly Chinese companies have been able to move is that it only takes a handful that aren't doing quality control mm -hmm. um, and to, to kind of spoil a market. And, right. Uh, and so I, I don't think it'll always be that way, but mm -hmm. um, 
CES is the perfect opportunity to, you know, to try to sell something quickly that you haven't spent a lot of time doing quality right. control on. Right. Yeah. And then there's the IP issues as well. I mean, I, I right. saw from the news that the government, the U.S., um, I guess, I don't know if it was the FBI or somebody else. The Marshals, U.S. Marshals. It was U.S. Marshals. Okay. And it was somebody on the federal side. But um, they raided a booth at CES that was selling Chinese hoverboards, I guess. And, and it, as I understand it, I haven't looked into it in depth. It was an IP yeah. issue that they were investigating. So. It was. A, I, I read the piece on this. It was a single okay. wheel. A hoverboard so oh, okay. it was essentially a big wheel in the middle of the platform right. so you okay. stood on it and moved around mm-hmm. and and there are two key patents um, backing up the company that had developed this and they had given the Chinese company some warning but the, the Chinese company didn't seem to care and so they showed up at CES and what happened is the the company owner called up a, a, or actually filed a motion um, to get an injunction and they had mm. a seven minute hearing over the phone with the judge and the judge went ahead and granted the injunction, and so they, that's what, wow. that's under the territory of U.S. Marshals, and so they went down and shut them down. Crazy. Yeah. Um, cars was another thing that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I, they seem to have a more prominent presence, especially um, beyond just sort of the in-car tech kind of announcements. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tesla's got a new competitor now um, that... Uh, in the electric car space, I, there's, yeah. and there were there were pieces during the time talking about during the week they were talking about this shift of American auto manufacturing, you know, which is normally based in the Detroit area, um, seeing competition now out of Silicon Valley, right? You know, and with all the rumors of Apple moving into the car market, in fact, today in the news. It, you know, somebody spotted that Apple's registered Apple.cars as a domain name mm-hmm. and a couple other, I think Apple.auto and one other. Yeah. But um, it, it's uh, CES, I, I think you're going to see more cars at CES um, mm. in the next year or two. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they've been there for the last several years, but it's been frustrating from a technology point of view because you'd go and try to get demos of what I would consider the interesting technology stuff, like how does it interface with your smartphone and that kind of thing. And they'd always want to demo something completely different that that felt sort of almost non-technology related, which felt strange at a show like CES. But um, And then, you know, with Android Auto and CarPlay becoming available on some of the models last year, trying to get demos of those was almost impossible. Um, the same thing was true at the New York Auto Show a few months ago as well. So that's starting to change now. Ford was actually demoing Android Auto and CarPlay alongside its Sync product at, at CES this time around. So it's starting to improve from that perspective. There was also lots of stuff from um, the automotive supply chain at CES this time around. And they've always been there, you know, the Kenwoods and, and Harman Kardon and, and all the rest of it, you know, with the car stereos yeah. and, and head ends and so on. But a lot of stuff around the whole autonomous driving story as well. Um, lots of people doing demos around that. I met with here, which is the former Nokia unit that was recently acquired by the three big German automakers. Um, and they were talking about everything that they're doing with autonomous driving and the, the clever technology that they have using their map assets, but also location and traffic and various other things that they, they've built over the last several years. Some really interesting stuff happening and did an interesting demo that they had um, where you kind of drove for a while and said, you know, I could take over for this part of the journey. And then, you know, there was this smooth handoff where you handed off to the car and then the car handed it back over to you again. And this is all in a, in a simulator, but 
you know, you could easily see, you know, they're showing off the various aspects of their technology, like, you know, I can park your car now at the end of the journey as well, or while you're on the journey, since you're not driving, here are some suggestions for places you might want to park or places you might want to eat when you get there and things like that. So that's quite clever. So, and I've seen, you know, coverage from quite a few of the, the tech news sites of various other sort of solutions that were on display there and, and you know, various driving experiences around Vegas in, in autonomous or semi-autonomous vehicles. Well, and related to the autonomous vehicles things, so um, Greg Koenig, who blogs at Atomic Delights and is the industrial designer for the Luma Loop, which is a really cool camera strap, um, he tweeted what he thought was the biggest announcement out of CES, and it's by a company called Quantergy, and, and what they've announced is a solid-state LiDAR device. Now, LiDAR is essentially radar, but with lasers, and it's how, and it's, it's a device that uh, that self-driving cars use to sense the space around them so they don't run into anything. And, uh, and, and LiDAR sensors can be really expensive, tens of thousands of dollars. And uh, Quantergy announced, and part of the reason is because they have really delicate moving parts inside. And uh, um, this company, Quantergy, announced a solid-state LiDAR device um, that, uh, that can what is it in fact i've got it right here it can it basically can map up to a million points um a second which is i mean sounds amazing i'm not an engineer <laughs> to know like mm -hmm. you know how big of a deal that is but right but the big deal about it is that it's uh going to be significantly less expensive than current lidar devices and in fact quantity said if they can get it up to volume production they expect it to cost around $250 or less, which <clears throat> is potentially a big deal for autonomous cars because they are mm -hmm. going to be more expensive at first. That's just right. the way things work. And <clears throat> moving a, a, any component for a self-driving car, moving it from tens of thousands of dollars down to a couple hundred bucks is a, is a big deal. And uh, so it, it, that sounded like a really cool advancement that will be kind of the big announcement that happens behind the scenes that, you know, for the stuff that happens behind the scenes that you won't ever see, but that will make mm -hmm. it much more affordable. Yeah, I, one of the most fascinating things, and, and again, this came out of the here briefing that I did, but, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about autonomous vehicles. We're obviously currently in the here and now where they're, they're not really a reality yet, except at a very basic level. Um, and, you know, a lot of what they're spending time thinking about is how does the interim period work, where you have some autonomous vehicles on the road, but many, you know, cars that are still being driven by human beings, and how do they interact with each other, and what solutions could you put out there that would help even in non-autonomous vehicles in the meantime until those vehicles are replaced by autonomous or, uh, vehicles over time. And th there's a heck of a lot of work to be done over the next 10 years or so, you know, where we'll see this subtle change start to happen um, around, you know, how these autonomous and non-autonomous vehicles will interact with each other and how, um, you know, you gain drivers' trust so that they trust the car to take over for them to drive in a way that makes them feel comfortable. And lots of really interesting research being done on how people actually drive. You know, there's, you can model good driving, quote unquote, on a computer and say, okay, you go at certain speeds and as you come to a corner, you slow down and all that kind of stuff. And yet, if you actually watch how people drive, it's not necessarily what you'd predict with a computer model. And so a lot of the work is going into how do you 
uh, replicate you know the benign sides of how human beings drive obviously without the negatives of, of crashing into things but um, you know how do you make people feel comfortable that the car is driving the way that they like to be driven um, and there's sort of a universal side to that and then there's also the sort of personalization and customization aspect which is you know car might have several modes you can say okay I want you to drive me there but in a sporty way or I want you to drive me there but with the best fuel economy possible or you know have other various settings for how you'd like the car to drive you so there's lots and lots of really interesting work going on around all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I do say I, I do want to say I think when it comes to autonomous cars, the the trust issue I don't think is going to be conquered for the people that are buying cars. I think it's going to be conquered by I think I think trust is going to I think people are going to learn to trust autonomous vehicles because they're going to realize they don't even need to own a car as a result because you'll be able to schedule a car service. And so when it's time to get the kids to school, an autonomous car will show up, you know. Uh, on your front step, um, you know, in time for you to get your kids out the door. And more and more people aren't going to need to even own cars. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's going to get people to to overcome their fear of trust. I think the kind of people who would still be buying cars would still, you know, feel a sense of wanting to have control. And so it's going to be the cost benefit and the efficiency benefit that's going to move people I think trust is still going to be a problem. And I'll be honest, I think we're going to have uh, a recall or some other, you know, like rash of accidents, something scandalous relative to autonomous vehicles that is going to make the, basically the cost savings are going to have to be really compelling Mm -hmm. um, just because people are naturally untrustworthy, which is crazy, right? Because people get into taxis every day with drivers that they've never met. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they're willing yeah. to trust this person who could have been drinking the night before and really hung over or, you right. know, who could have had very little sleep because, mm-hmm. you know, he's working three jobs. There, there could or be just be a terrible driver. In the yeah, right. Or just be a bad yeah. driver. Yeah. And um, yeah. for whatever reason, I think we just inherently trust people more than than the computers that people make. Mm. And uh, and so I think cost is going to have to be the thing that makes people willing to trust computers to drive them around. Mm. That's an interesting thought. Um, let's talk about wearables. The kind of uh, you know, Fitbits and Withings had some interesting announcements at the show. Fitbit came out with the Blaze, which is, you know, at first glance an Apple Watch um, clone. Um, you know, I actually had a chance to look at it on the show floor, and you know, despite some of the press images, it does not look like an Apple Watch. It, it's very much clunkier and uglier, and feels pretty plasticky. Um, has a massive bezel around it. Um, and, uh, you know, the software is decent, um, you know, majors obviously on the fitness stuff, not so good on the other stuff that, you know, would expect a true smartwatch to do. Um, but their stock tanked um, after they made that announcement. And I think it was just a, a confirmation of what many people had feared, which is that rather than kind of sticking to its knitting, as you might say, you know, Fitbit was trying to compete head on against this new category of smartwatches. Um, so getting out of their kind of core comfort zone, getting out of where they're really strong and differentiated, which is the sort of fitness um, specialized devices, and going into this other category where they really don't seem like they'd be able to compete and could end up being a very expensive mistake for them. Um, but you, you mentioned another you know, announcement from Withings that you thought was indicative of perhaps the better way to go for these companies. Yeah, so um, I, I do want to say, I, I, think, I think announcing an even mediocre or average smartwatch was one of the dumbest things that Fitbit could have done. 
um, because it's not going to be able to compete that way. It doesn't have an ecosystem to push a smartwatch out. You know, I mean, it's got people using Fitbits already that are, you know, using the the web to track their fitness levels, but that's about it. And what's you know, and so for Fitbit to to release an average smartwatch or below average smartwatch, I think it, I think signals just really bad decision making by management. There's going to be a huge ecosystem of of smart health products built around smartphones. I mean, that's that's where things are headed, and um, Apple and Google and Samsung. Well, maybe Samsung, but most companies aren't going to be making every single device that could be useful as a part of this ecosystem. And that's what I think. Withings has a general better strategy. So this week they announced the Thermo, which is a thermometer. You swipe it across the forehead like a lot of other thermometers um, that you can buy today. It checks your temperature. It talks to your phone. It and you can actually set it up so there are different profiles, so you can check different family members' temperatures. I, I do want to make it clear. It, I think this is a silly product because it's a hundred bucks. Um, if it was 20, I could see the rationale to get one of these, maybe 30. Um, but what I like about what Withings is doing is they're recognizing this this health ecosystem built up around smartphones mm-hmm. and rather trying to go after the smartwatch where really, really big, well-funded players that control the ecosystem are competing. Um, Withings has sort of said, you know what, we're going to supplement it with all these different things. And so they have their scale. They have this thermo thing. I mean, they do have heart rate monitors and and, and, and other things like that. But that's, you know, I think the point is, is they figured out that they can fill in the gaps in the ecosystem and provide mm-hmm. products that people are actually going to want to use. I think prices will come down over time. It's expensive to make these things now, but it won't always be. And I think Withings has a good idea. I think Fitbit's idea to go head to head against, you know, um, Android and Apple smartwatches is a bad idea. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to play out well for them. I I think nobody's going to buy it. But but I think Withings' approach is actually smart and thoughtful about what the future holds. You can tell they're thinking multiple years out with Mm -hmm. the way that they're approaching this. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the other interesting things, and I saw this more in the kind of emails and things that I got before CES from various companies that were sending pitches rather than seeing it a lot in evidence, although I did see a few examples of it at at CES itself. But, um, you know, most of the sort of fitness and health-oriented wearables have been about tracking and possibly going as far as diagnosing something. Um, You know, you've got the health monitor, the heart rate monitors and things like that. most of them until recently haven't really tried to treat anything. Um, and so what I started to see more of in the build-up to CES and a few examples actually at CES was devices that are intended to actually help deal with some medical condition or other, whether it's helping you sleep better, whether it's helping you um, deal with stress, whether it's helping you to um, you know, become healthier in other ways, um, treat a specific condition. Uh, there was more of that happening. And, you know, that's something that there's been a lot of promise of for a long time. It's it's where this whole category has a potential get tied up in things like FDA regulations and so on. And so it's a harder 
and, and longer slog for companies to get down that road. And, and Tim Cook's talked specifically about how Apple probably wouldn't want to do that with the Apple Watch, just because you do get tied up in uh, a lot of regulatory red tape. But you know, there is this huge opportunity around actually treating conditions with technology. And so I think we will see more and more of this. And I think another area for some of these fitness-oriented wearables to, to think about getting into is this whole health area where you actually start to treat a condition and not just um, tell you, you know, what you're doing, essentially, which, you know, after just a fairly short period starts to become fairly mundane. You kind of know roughly how many calories you burn doing certain activities. You know, you know, you take this many steps on a day when you walk the dog and that many steps on a day when you don't or go to the gym or whatever. And the value of a lot of these devices becomes a lot less over time. But if they can actually help you to improve your health in some meaningful way beyond just changing your own behavior, then suddenly, you know, they provide a lot more value and potentially a lot more stickiness. And so I think that's something that, that these companies should be thinking about too. And, and there's some evidence that some specialist companies are doing that. Um, there's less evidence that, um, you know, this is happening from some of the bigger companies already in that space. Yeah, I, I, I think that makes all kinds of sense. I, there's still so much out there in terms of smart technologies that relates to health that the big players are never going to spend their time on because the regulatory hurdles of the market is too small for what they're trying to accomplish. We're never going to have yeah. a smartwatch that can track everything meaningfully. Well, I shouldn't say never, but you know, mm -hmm. not for decades. Right. And uh, and so there is a place for all these extra things, you know, like Withings has has, uh, you know, a blood pressure monitor and an O2 monitor to, to check the oxygen level in your blood. And and these are all things that, you know, aren't useful to everybody, but they're really mm -hmm. useful to certain people. And right. they're also products that that, you know, Apple's never going to make. Right. And so I think that's where this makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So another th category that was everywhere was um, virtual reality and a little bit of augmented reality as well. And obviously, you know, Oculus is one of the biggest names in the space right now. And they finally announced their pre-order process and pricing for the Oculus Rift that's been long awaited um, during CES. And they, they had a booth at CES where there was a constant line um, outside the booth for, for demos of that particular device. Um, you know, there were also others, you know, HTC has this Vive headset um, Oculus has previously come out with a Gear VR that works with certain Samsung smartphones. Uh, I've tried both of those. They're both um, very good, actually, really immersive and surprisingly impressive for you know, being run by relatively uh, less powerful hardware. Um, Oculus Rift is, is still considered by a lot of people to be the best thing that they've tried. There are obviously other contenders in this space, and Microsoft didn't have a huge direct presence at CES, but they've obviously got HoloLens that's out there, um, you know, uh, getting ready to launch later this year. Um, you've got Magic Leap, which is a big name that hasn't really done a lot of public demos yet, but certain people have tried it and say it's very impressive as well. It's more along the augmented reality lines. So lots of activity in this area right now. It feels to me like it's finally breaking out of its sort of theoretical potential and into some real products, finally. I don't know that that means it's going to be this enormous thing. Um, I think a bit like drones, there's going to be some really interesting commercial applications for some of this stuff. And 
Microsoft's done a good job of demoing some of that with the HoloLens. I think the consumer side is, is very much limited to gaming for now. Um, there were some demos at CES of sort of movies and that kind of thing, but it takes a heck of a lot of work to convert a movie to that kind of format for what's essentially a tiny, tiny audience today. So I'm skeptical it's going to get beyond sort of a subset of the hardcore gaming market. I still think the mobile side of it, so something that works with a smartphone with a $100 add-on like Gear VR, is a lot more promising because it's a lot more accessible um, and it fits with a device that people are already using for more casual gaming. Um, the problem is where people do a lot of casual gaming is often when they're out and about on the train or waiting for an appointment or something and strapping a big headset to your face while they're on the bus or at the doctor's office doesn't feel like it's something that a lot of people are going to be comfortable doing at least in the near future. So that's my, my kind of big worry there is I think that that's limited in terms of its overall impact but it's certainly bigger than it ever has been in the past. Yeah, you know, I think what's going to have to happen with VR to really take off is there needs to be some sort of new media medium. There, there needs to be some new content to make it really exciting and compelling. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, there there needs to be something that makes VR necessary to uh, as some kind of entertainment that you can't experience in any other way right mm -hmm. i mean like for example i still much prefer regular movies to 3d movies every time i go to a movie that's you know shown in 3d it just always feels blurry and, and unclear and is a distraction more than anything mm -hmm. else yeah and um i think it it can be that kind of a thing with vr um unless there's something else gaming is i think where there's the most potential there for you know a vr game being truly unique and different versus what you would get just you know you know playing something on your screen but mm -hmm. uh, we'll see I, I i certainly wouldn't rule it out as a yeah. possibility but it's going to take new content and not just mm -hmm. and, and not just sort of like you can watch a movie and look around at the same time kind of thing it needs to be right, something right. more tailored yeah, yeah, for sure. It feels like we're not there yet as far as that's concerned. Um, another category that we were going to talk about is headphones. Um, and obviously lots of audio companies at, at CES and, um, you know, the Sennheisers and the Audio Technicas and a whole range of others with headphones on display. Um, there's also been some news this week that, you know, Apple is almost certainly going to be dropping the three and a half millimeter headphone jack from the next iPhone and um, going lightning only for future headphones that work with iPhones. So um, that's kind of part of the context here too. But were there, was there anything in particular that you saw in the news coverage that was of interest to you here? Yeah, there were a couple things. Um, one, it definitely seems like wireless headphones are more the future than wired ones. I mean, even with Apple shifting away from the regular, you know, headphone jack, I think if anything, that's just going to push people to get wireless headphones more rather than lightning connected headphones because you know there are a lot of phone, smartphones out there that don't have lightning ports and so i think it's going to i think wireless headphones are going to be the future i think probably the most interesting thing that i saw was that um the verge had a chance to review the broggy dash headphones so these are in-ear headphones that don't have a wire connected between them broggy kickstarted these um, they had to delay them uh, for a while and that obviously upset some people but now they're out, and according to the review that The Verge posted, they're pretty dang impressive. Um, they didn't get really deep into the sound quality of these things, but it was the features in them that were really cool. Um, one is that uh, they actually have 
mics on the outside of the of the earpieces so all you do is swipe the left earpiece and it will allow in ambient sound because as in-ear headphones they seal in your ear canal mm -hmm. and so you to hear what's going on around you it'll actually mix the audio coming from your phone with the audio that the mics are picking up from around you and right. what's really cool is that it's directional. So you point one direction and you'll hear what's happening. Or if somebody's talking on your left-hand side, the the sound coming in through the headphones will play primarily on the left. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it sounds like, you know, something that engineering-wise was probably pretty complicated. But, you know, in, uh, from, from the review, it made it sound like, yeah, of course, this is how these should work. And it was awesome. So... In fact, he said it was almost a little surreal how well that feature worked. I, right. I think cool things are going to happen with headphones. Um, somebody else tweeted, and gosh, I wish I could remember who it was so I could give credit, but basically pointed out that the ear is a great place for health tracking. I mean, we you can use ears to check temp body temperature. You, mm -hmm. you know, you can... Um, uh, you can uh, the ear is a place where doctors look all the time for various reasons right. and so right. yeah. the idea that this could be built into headphones is exciting and you know Apple mm -hmm. is a headphone manufacturer not just because they had ear pods and iPods with headphones before that but now they own um, Beats and I think we're going to see some uh, big changes in headphones in the next two years and uh, by a lot of companies and I think it's exciting I think it'll be cool yeah, it's interesting to me. I mean, I, when after the Apple Watch came out, I wrote a piece for Tech Opinions about you know Apple's intimate computing slogan that they have around the, the watch, and um, you know I referenced a couple of pieces that M. G. Siegler had written um, a few months previous, where he talked about how he had in the first of the pieces he talked about how he'd basically silenced his phone because he was constantly wearing a Bluetooth earpiece. And that you know that basically meant that the sound could only go to him, uh, so it was still useful to him, but he wasn't bothering everybody else around him, um, and it was easy to forget that he was wearing this thing. Except that to other people, he kind of still looked a little bit like a cyborg when he had the thing sticking out of his ear. And we did a follow-up piece a few months later when the Moto Hint came out, which was a Bluetooth earpiece that really sits just inside your ear, uh, much more like the, the headphones you just or the earbuds you've just been discussing. Um, and I think, you know, those devices have this potential to be much more intimate in that sense, to be part of this world in which, you know, these devices are directly connected to us and therefore can provide us feedback and can take input as well from us that isn't necessarily visible or obvious to other people and therefore can be much more personal, much more private in that sense, and yet still allow us to feel like we're in, in the world and not, you know, walking around with some gigantic thing attached to the side of our head. Um, and so to the extent that Apple moves in this direction, I, I'm, I'm sure it won't just be about playing music um, through these things, but also will be, you know, a way to interact with Siri potentially, will be a way to get, you know, notifications and so on. Um, could work very well with the Apple Watch such that you could, you know, instead of having to do the Dick Tracy thing and hold your watch up to your mouth to, to issue a command, you could just issue it through the, through the headset using, you know, kind of an OK Siri or Hey Siri type, um, you know, voice prompt. Um, you know, I saw some some headphones from Plantronics that that very much work that way um, at, the, at the show as well. And you know, it's all the same idea that you know, you once you have something that's permanently attached to you, as long as it's um, unintrusive enough, it, it starts to become very powerful in the ways in which you can use it to interact with the world around you as well, while still remaining in that world and not sort of putting a big barrier between you and, and the other people around you. So I, I think there's a heck of a lot of potential there around all of this stuff.
I think this is a good insight because the obtrusiveness of it is really the big deal. And I think we actually have a pretty low tolerance for it. I think they mm -hmm. need to be, you know, really inconspicuous for us to be comfortable with them. Um, one other feature to mention just because of a comment you made is um, in terms of like interactivity through these devices, uh, the Broggy Dash headphones also apparently can answer your phone or decline a call with either nodding or shaking your head. Mm, <laughs> so, right, okay. you know, which to me sounds like the exact kind of feature that would that would screw up because, you know, yeah, yeah. Even, you, you have know, to be you, nodding when the call comes in or whatever. Yeah, you nod. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, whether you're either turning down your spouse's call at the wrong time accidentally mm -hmm. or taking a call that you don't want in a meeting. But right. But I think you're right. I think I think there's a ton of potential there. And I think headphones will be leading the charge in that regard. I don't think it's, yeah. for example, I don't think it's in front of your eyes like the way mm -hmm. Google has tried. I think it's going to be in your right. ears. Yeah. So one other thing that was kind of in evidence again at uh, CES was 4K TVs and, and that kind of thing. And obviously 4K TVs have been around now for several years, but there was a big push this year around um, things other than, you know, the resolution, which is what 4K is really named for. And 4K has always been about more than just, you know, increasing the resolution of the picture. It's been about color and, and sound and other stuff too. But, um, you know, HDR, which is a term that most of us are probably more familiar with, with from photography, um, is becoming a big term in this whole sphere. And so, you know, high dynamic range in the picture and the color gamut and that kind of thing on these TVs is becoming a big deal. And so, you know, the big TV companies like Sony and LG and Samsung and others were all displaying their latest televisions that have, you know, better HDR performance. Another interesting thing was that some of the big um, pay TV companies in the US, so AT&T through DirecTV, Dish, their main competitor in the satellite space, uh, and others were making announcements about their set-top boxes being 4K capable. Um, I saw other announcements being made in press releases, although not necessarily present at the show, from, from other cable companies saying that they are going to be supporting HDR in their HD offerings, um, so better color gamut in um, their set-top boxes, even for HD rather than 4K content. So that whole space continues to evolve. You know, 4K TVs are obviously still significantly more expensive in most cases than HD TVs, but the prices have come down a lot over the last couple of years. And so that's something we're going to be seeing more of, and it feels like this year could be big in terms of actually finally seeing some of the content. Um, because a lot of people have 4K TVs, but it's kind of like the early days of HD TVs where people bought these TVs and everything they were watching was still in SD. Um, we're kind of at that stage still with 4K where lots of people have the the sets to watch the content and the content itself hasn't really arrived yet and so um you know several people i talked to at the show were saying you know this year is the year that probably espn and other sports broadcasters are going to start doing more stuff with 4k um and so that will drive interest in this and and will kick off kind of the content availability companies like netflix obviously already providing some 4k content through their streaming services so that's out there but um, you know, that's another trend that there's no huge new news this year, but just another one that continues to evolve. And, and it's easy to see over the next several years, it's going to become kind of commonplace. I think this is the first time I'm optimistic about another upgrade cycle coming for television. Mm -hmm. Because after the HD push happened, you know, it really felt like television, you know, manufacturers were flailing to come up with right. another reason to buy a TV. And so you had... 3D, the biggest example. Right, 3D that. was a huge disaster, in my opinion. And then, mm -hmm. you know, curved screens, I think, are another example of the sort of silliness. There's not a ton of value for getting a curved yeah. screen in a television. But I think 4K and HDR 
actually have the chance to push people to upgrade in part because HDTVs have been around for a while. And so, you know, right. I think now that people have had enough time with their existing sets, they're maybe willing to fork over, you know, another thousand dollars for a new one, but also yeah. because I think it's going to show well, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think, uh, I think the problem with these other, you know, failed efforts in the past few years have been that, they aren't the sort of thing where when somebody sees it, they think, oh, this is, a, I could see this making a difference every time right. I turn on my TV. Right. But I think 4K and HDR actually have the potential to get people to go, oh, that is better in a way that I care about. And, mm -hmm. and you know, yeah. they'll see it at Walmart or Target mm -hmm. or they'll see it at a neighbor's house, right, or a sibling's house or something. They'll, mm -hmm. The point is they'll experience it. And it, as the content catches up, which I agree I think is going to happen quite a bit this year, I think uh, I, I think television manufacturers should be optimistic because it, it looks like there's another upgrade cycle on the horizon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, and it's very obvious. I mean, we look at these 4K sets, even when they're not deliberately placed next to, you know, detuned conventional TVs. Um, you know, they, they, it looks very impressive. It's very obvious in a way that you know, 3D. A, you needed glasses for most of those things, and that's another thing that 4, 4K has as an advantage over 3D. Is it other than the television itself? You don't need to wear anything. You don't need every person in the house to have some special accessory to be able to take advantage of it. So right. um, has other advantages like that too. Any last sort of trends or things to mention from CES? No, I think that was pretty good coverage. I mean, yeah. you know, like most CESs, I come away from the week reading all the news items with a shrug. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, there's some cool stuff, but th mm -hmm. there wasn't anything that that has me super excited. I, um, yeah. I do think this was a decent year for CES, though. Mm -hmm. um, which I couldn't have said for years past. So yeah, that yeah. no, was interesting. It was a, this was a year of many smaller announcements, each yeah. of which were moderately significant, rather than sort of one big announcement. But right. it's kind of interesting for that kind of the diversity of the news. But that's where um, CES is especially exciting, in my opinion. Like that's where CES yeah. is cool. Yeah. Is where you have a, a wide range of announcements. Right. You know, not the sort of thing where Microsoft shows up with a big announcement that they could have just done on their own time. Mm -hmm. So. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have miles and miles of show floor, and everybody's talking about one thing. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, to my mind, one of the biggest announcements was was Netflix's, um, which we're going to talk about next, um, because they announced during a keynote in which they also announced and did sort of previews for various new shows that they have coming out. They announced that they're suddenly going to go to 130 new countries, including India and some other really big ones. Um, notably absent is China, which is you know still one of the toughest markets for, for non-Chinese companies to break into, especially with content services. Um, but you know this was a huge and unexpected announcement. You know we knew that they were going to push into a lot of new countries during the course of 2016, but to announce an instant entry in the first week of 2016 to all these countries was pretty amazing and just logistically a huge feat. Just getting all that queued up, getting all the rights queued up, getting the websites all ready to go. Um, you know, so many other elements um, that they needed to, to have in place here, language and localization and that kind of thing. And some of that will still come later, but, um, you know, a huge amount of effort that will have gone into that. And to have kept that that quiet and then to have been able to turn it on instantaneously, um, you know, on, on a single day in so many places is, is really quite the feat. Um, but the piece that I wrote this week about all of this was, um, about the financial implications, because every time Netflix goes into a new country, it takes a hit on its margins. And it's previously only gone into, you know, a country here, a couple of countries there at a time. 
Uh, and so to go into so many new countries all at once suggests that they're going to take a really major hit to their margins. And, and there are several reasons why they're less profitable in these new countries. Obviously, they have to promote themselves more heavily. Um, they offer one-month free trials, so you get a lot of the costs without the revenue for the first month. Um, you have uh, scale disadvantages in these countries where you have certain fixed costs that are borne by a very small number of paying subscribers in the beginning, all kinds of things like this. And eventually they'll hit profitability in these countries, but by launching in all of them at once, I'm guessing their first quarter uh, and probably several quarters this year will be pretty poor on margin front uh, in the international business. Uh, and in the past, their DVD business in the US, which is this huge cash cow for them and has very high margins, has been able to offset essentially all of the costs of uh, launching in new markets internationally. I suspect it's going to come far short of that uh, for the next few quarters. So it's very interesting to see. And their guidance from 2016 that they gave uh, in their Q3 earnings call was simply that they would be roughly break even. Um, but that was pretty loose guidance to give for the, for the year as a whole. So it'll be very interesting, I think, on the 26th, maybe this month, they're reporting their Q4 earnings. And I would expect them to get a ton of questions about the financial impact of all of this and, and when it's going to hit and how significant it's going to be and, and that kind of thing. But really interesting announcement. And it's really the first time that you've had a paid video service that's global. Um, you know, iTunes has probably been the closest thing, but it's a kind of buy the drink type thing. It's in a lot of countries, but by no means all of the countries. Um, where Netflix is going to be. Um, some of the, the libraries very limited in some of those countries for iTunes. Um, you know, YouTube's obviously a global video site, but it's, you know, ad-supported and, and largely user-generated content rather than professional content. So this is really kind of unprecedented in this sense. And I, I think it's very exciting in that sense, but I'm, I'm very curious about the financial implications. I think one of the ways that this announcement is exciting but also really interesting is how Netflix is going to... You know, hopefully start reaching out to locally produced content in all the countries it's operating now. Because that's one of the, you know, that's one of the realities. And we've talked about this before in a previous episode mm. about how, you know, a lot of content that people are into both. We talked about it in the context of music when we were talking yeah. about Beats 1. But it's very true in the video space as well. I mean, I think about where I've traveled internationally, especially in parts of the developing world. And most of what people watch is not stuff made by Americans. I mean, they'll go to... Um, they'll go see like the big movies when they come out. So right. I was in Ghana, for example, when Iron Man 2 came out. And, you know, there were a lot of people going to see that movie, but but the kind of movies that people were watching at home were, you know, locally produced, either in Nigeria mm -hmm. or Ghana. And they're kind of, you know, soap opera type things where they're following these stories. And, and uh, that's true also, not just for movies that people watch at home, but it's also true for television. And it'll be interesting to see how Netflix handles that. Like, are they mostly just going to be shipping out this sort of American-produced media? Or are they going to be lining up content deals with, um, um, you know, locally produced stuff? I mean, it, you know, Netflix has a lot of Bollywood content, and mm. that's done well for them. And it's also had the interesting benefit of reaching new markets with Bollywood stuff. And so they're, you know, Americans who are really into it because it's so much more accessible to them now. And I'm curious to see how Netflix manages all this local content and if it helps the content creators in these other countries reach places where they haven't been able to reach before. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm fascinated by 
by all of that. And I, you know, I think even though it's in these countries, in many of these countries, Netflix will not be a known brand, and so it will take some time for them to build up interest and so on. And that, that will cost money too, but it does mean that some of the impact may be a little muted, at least in some of the countries where it's been less anticipated. Although I know in some of the biggest countries like India, it has been very much anticipated. And, uh, so I would expect it to be pretty big there among the communities that have broadband and have the financial means to pay for it. Uh, and that's an important point too. In many of these countries, it's going to achieve nothing like the share of market that it has in, say, the US or European markets or Australia or places where people generally have broadband and they have the means to pay for something like this. Right. I did also think your insight about how this makes Netflix a much more attractive acquisition target for Apple was really interesting. I, I think... Uh, you know, but two months ago, I would have said, nah, I don't think that's going to happen. But now that Netflix is rolling out an international presence, um, I, I could see that happening with like a one in 10 likelihood versus a one in a thousand likelihood. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. I, you know, I, and if it wasn't for the Beats acquisition, I would have said no way ever. But right, right. Apple kind of opened the door to the idea that they're willing to make a purchase that has to do with mm -hmm. with content reach and curation and all those other things. Mm -hmm. And and I could see Apple having a much more heightened interest in Netflix now. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, if anybody is not aware, I wrote a piece this week on Tech Opinions outlining my reasons for thinking that Apple should buy Netflix or should consider it at least. And this is an idea that I first floated on this podcast a few weeks back. And I've been meaning to write up since then, but I won't go into all the rationale here. You can read the piece, and we'll link to it. But um, you know, in essence, this this would just get Apple into the subscription video business, which is clearly a place that they want to be in. They're clearly trying to get back into being a direct provider of content rather than just a store where people access other ways of accessing content. And so this would be a shortcut to that in terms of they, they'd own it, and they can slowly integrate it into things like iOS. Um, but it would also be a great foothold for building something more over time. You know, the, the TV service that they've been working on forever and haven't managed to launch yet, um, you know, it would give them leverage there, it would give them uh, interesting branding awareness as a starting point for this kind of stuff too. So all kinds of reasons why that might make sense. So I'll, I'll direct you to that piece if you want to read more about that. Uh, our final topic this week is um, some numbers that Apple put out this week about the App Store, and, and we'll just cover this briefly, but um, did the same thing last year, sort of early in the new year, Apple's provided numbers around the performance of the App Store over the previous year, and specifically over the holiday period, which is always the biggest, most popular period for them. Um, you know, this year, they, they set two daily records during the holiday period. I think it was uh, Christmas and New Year's days um, were the biggest days ever for the App Store and, and New Year's beat Christmas. Um, you know, really big numbers, $20 billion, over $20 billion spent by consumers in the App Store in 2014, of which, of course, developers get about two-thirds or about $14 billion, and Apple gets the other sort of six or seven billion. Um, so, you know, huge numbers we're talking about here in terms of gross revenues, in terms of net revenue for Apple. Um, in terms of you know the cut for developers and, and so on. Um, and so I shared some numbers in a post this week about how that number's grown over time, uh, but also looked at the sort of spend per active iOS user. Um, and it's really interesting because you know although it grew very quickly early on, it then quickly plateaued. Um, you know so from about 2008 to 2012, it was largely flat and even slightly declining. And then in early 2013, it really took off and ended up roughly doubling. 
uh, over the next couple of years in terms of the spend per active iOS device. And so my theory is the biggest reason behind that is the launch of in-app purchases and specifically things like Candy Crush and so on that really use that model as the basis of, of making phenomenal amounts of money around gaming with very small numbers of users spending very large amounts of money on those games. Um, and that raises the question of, you know, is that really something that Apple wants to continue to encourage? Uh, is Apple's focus on supporting that side of the App Store and these huge numbers that they've been publishing the reason why they haven't been fixing some of the other issues that we've talked about here over the last few weeks around the App Store with the Mac and the iPad in particular? So those are some of the thoughts that that I kind of shared around those numbers, but no doubt they're, they're very impressive numbers at this point and, and still growing incredibly quickly. You know, it will take more evidence out in the media that in-app purchases have a predatory effect than the evidence we have right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to be that there are, I mean, there, without a doubt, there are people paying crazy amounts of money for in-app yeah. content or in-app currency or whatever it is. Um, you know, in the in the game that they're playing, but but the point is, is that there's there's not a lot out there so far about this being all that predatory. I mean, Apple had that problem really early on with in-app purchases, um, and so they changed the way password locking can happen, and you right. know they made it a lot harder for a two-year-old to accidentally spend a thousand dollars in an app. <laughs> And yeah. since that time, there really hasn't been a bunch out there. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the question is, who's paying for all of this? Right. I mean, it has right. to be a, a pretty relatively small group of people. It and, is, but yeah. if you think about it, I mean, it's really just, in a sense, it, it's just differential pricing, right? I mean, if you can charge one customer a lot more than another customer and get away with it, it's, it's an efficient way to price for a business. And yeah. the downside, however, obviously, is that it changes the the experience in the app for everybody else. I mean, mm -hmm. there are some games I don't play and quite honestly don't even want my kids to play because the in-app purchasing model just kind of ruins them. And right. some yeah. games have got it figured out, other games don't. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it's sad because those games could have been great if I could have just paid, a, you know, a flat price for them. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I, I'm. I'm a bit more um, concerned about the the in-app purchase model. I mean, I, I wrote a piece for Tech Opinions about this a few months ago, um, which I linked to from the piece I wrote this week about the App Store. But um, you know, it's a very small percentage of people that, in some cases, are spending extraordinary amounts of money, and it worries me that it taps into same sort of mentalities as compulsive gambling does, where people get addicted to playing the game, and the games are structured and designed such that you can't just keep playing them unless you pay up more money. You know, you can always wait and come back later. You can, you know, accomplish other goals within the game, sometimes to unlock the same functionality, but they're certainly designed such that paying money now is the easiest way to keep playing the game. And for people who have become addicted to these things, um, that becomes a very easy um, purchase. You know, you don't require actually getting a cash or even a credit card out. You just, you know, press your thumb to the sensor in some cases or, or put in a password and suddenly you've spent another $5 or $25 or $100 or whatever. And so I do worry about the, the mentality on the, the part of the gamer um, that's spending that much money in this way. And I worry that it's a very conscious decision on the part of the game designers to, to stimulate that behavior and to keep people playing in the slightly sort of compulsive, obsessive, out of control sort of way. And that's, that's my biggest worry about all this. And, you know, it'll be very interesting to see if there are any psychological studies done over the next few years about who plays games this way and why. But I, I suspect it may well show that 
it's it's preying on on a vulnerability um, in much the same way as I say gambling and so on. Having come from CES and, and Vegas just yesterday, very aware of all the social engineering that goes into making sure people spend as much time as possible gambling in these places, but it feels very similar in some ways as a as a strategy. I think we can take comfort at least in that Apple, you know, doesn't need the App Store to be raking it in to do well. Mm -hmm. um, I yeah. mean, it's a nice revenue source, but it certainly isn't a huge one relative to mm -hmm. other Apple's other revenue streams. And so yeah. I, I do think the moment it becomes unsavory, right, the moment there's a scandal or, or pressure, mm -hmm. there's, you know, more out there that makes Apple look bad by association. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think you could, I think we can expect to see a bunch of new restrictions dialing all that yeah. stuff back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That might well happen. Okay. Well, let's wrap up there on that topic and we'll conclude with our weekly pick, which is where we recommend something um, that we've been enjoying that we think our listeners might enjoy using too. Um, we take it in turns to do this and this week it's Aaron's turn. So over to you. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm suggesting a very non-tech kind of purchase in, as our counterpoint to CES, and it's a knife sharpener. Um, it, 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 uh, it's called the AccuSharp 001 knife sharpener. You can get it on Amazon for, you know, eight or nine bucks. It's pretty cheap. Um, and it is essentially a little white handle with a finger guard, and inside they have two tungsten carbide blades that you essentially swipe over the blade of your knife. Um, I just got that over the Christmas break um, to sharpen up some knives. I've used our honing rod, but that's not really sharpening the way a real sharpener does. And uh, and I was amazed it made a huge difference, really easy. You know, you can get, um, you know, a decent knife you can get sharp and just a handful of swipes, just a few swipes, uh, a, you know, a duller knife that's been in your kitchen drawer for a long time. Uh, you know, it might take 15 to 20 swipes. Um, the really cool thing about this is not just that it's so cheap and easy to use, but also that it works on scalloped bread knives. So if you have a mm. serrated knife okay. that, that's that's serrated with a scalloped edge, um, it works on that as well. Um, and it's not just for kitchen knives; it's generally for kitchen tool for all kinds of tools like axes or or pocket knives. The the one mm. thing they say to not use it on is scissors, um, because of the way the blade is angled as it comes out of the right. sharpener. Um, the, uh, uh, it, it's not going to give you the sharpest edge you could ever get, but to, to get the sharpest edge you could ever get, you'd need a whetstone and a leather strop right. and all <laughs> kinds of other tools that I think are beyond most of us. And so that's why mm -hmm. I'm recommending it is because it's the way to sharpen your kitchen knives that really anybody can, can do and do just fine at. And, right. um, you know, in less than a minute, your knife will be, it'll feel like a brand new knife. And so... Right. And again, I got to remind everybody, we don't get any kickbacks or other economic <laughs> I was say, benefits. This is starting to sound like an infomercial. I, know. <laughs> I just had a really good experience with it. And <laughs> it's really well reviewed. And I think, you know, the truth is a sharp knife is safer. And most people don't realize that if you have a dull knife, you're more likely to get cut because a dull knife leads to more accidents because you're not cutting with precision. And so sharpen those kitchen knives for your for the safety of your own fingers. 
All right, good stuff. Well, yeah, I can't remember if this has come up before, but Aaron's quite an avid cook, and so that's why I think he's excited about this knife because it's something that he uses a lot. A knife sharpener because knives and things are, are things he uses a lot in the kitchen. Uh, well, thank you for joining us as always, everybody. I'm grateful to have you with us this first episode in 2016. We look forward to being with you throughout the year as ever. If you have any feedback, comments, questions, or anything else, then uh, get in touch with one of us on Twitter. Um, come to the website and leave a comment. The website is podcast.beyonddevices. Um, and uh, we'd be uh, happy to hear from you and, and appreciate you continuing to listen. And uh, that's it for this week. And we'll be with you again next week.